So knowing that there's only certain time periods to do certain things, I've been more willing to spend money on and kind of taking that into account, the things that we do plan at certain stages of life that I'm otherwise previously might have. I, if I would have continued on the track of like, oh, I don't want to spend money, I could have missed out on the, the certain things that we might not be able to do in the future. That was probably the biggest mindset shift that I've had over the past couple of years. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 307. Stace, I know you've been thinking about this all week. What's going on in your world? How are you doing? I'm actually not laughing today because I'm really sad. My heart has felt very heavy for the people in Lahaina, Maui. We were literally there. Yeah, just about just a few weeks ago. It wasn't too long back in July. Yeah. So anyway, been feeling sad about that. And so prayers are with the people of Lahaina. We loved our time there. Just a beautiful, beautiful town. One of our favorite places we were. One of our favorite places we visited while we were in Hawaii. So much aloha to the people of Lahaina. Yeah. And and really, you know, we had fire here right in our backyard, not just on one of my favorite mountain bike trails too. So they, I mean, lots of people, homes, businesses affected between there and here kind of hits home, but uh, praying for all y'all out there and hopefully, um, you know, we can. Uh, I know there's been lots of people that lost their lives uh, through this tragedy, tragedy and tragedies as well. So hopefully, we can uh, rebuild and remember those that, that we've lost. And uh, yeah, it's uh, been a tough week, that's for sure. So at any rate, I'm definitely, and I don't know if I've ever said this in my life, but I am ready for summer to conclude a little bit. It's been hot for a lot, and I'm ready for our kids to. Uh, have some other things to do there's not very many uh formal activities and camps in august in texas so it's been a it's been a long one already and we're not even halfway done a couple housekeeping things got a couple of these coupons for a free box of factor factor has been a great supporter of the show uh go leave a review send me a screenshot Send it in to millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll enter you in for that drawing. I've got a couple of them. So as I mentioned earlier, we'll do this at the end of the month and notify those winners. I know there's a lot of people that binge listen to all the episodes. So try to make sure we catch everybody. And why don't you tell them what Factor is? Oh, yeah. Factor is an amazing meal delivery, basically. It comes in, I don't even know what box you'd call it. It's basically like dry ice. And then the meals are all pre-made. They're like 500 to 600 calories, and they are phenomenal. I've gotten several different ones to try myself, and uh, yeah, they're great. I've had a couple emails come in uh, about a couple requests, one being to you know get some guests on that maybe aren't millionaires and, and some stuff like that. And we've, we've done stuff like this in the past, and we've toyed with it. Just know I hear you. I, I'm trying to work on, on a solution because I also have a lot of listeners that only want to hear from millionaires and... At the end of the day, we've we've really realized that you know our audience is pretty wide, uh, from an age standpoint, gender, everything, income levels, net worth levels, and people resonate with people they can relate to. And so, we are going to do our best to to and got some ideas to kind of cover that. I also did uh, several uh, interviews with some of these that are have not been released yet that are not millionaires, 
And uh, so just just be aware that we are, we do, I do hear you, and we're trying to figure out how to make this and accommodate all this and, and make sure that uh, you know everybody's getting value because I do pre- appreciate the uh, millions of listeners out there nowadays. One thing that got brought up in the last episode, and it's something that uh, we've been talking a little about, about lately, is what happens in life, Stace, when your plans get derailed. Like when I was supposed to move back to California, but then we got married. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, after I graduated college, I lived in California for a little over a year. I was working there until I matched for my dietetic internship the following year back uh, back in Dallas. And I left all my stuff in California with my sister. I said, I'll be back in about 10 months after my dietetic internship. And uh, what do you know? Jason, I met, we got married, and I told my sister she could sell it all. <laughs> so I didn't realize when I had these grand plans to move back to California that I'd be marrying someone who was studying, who had studied counting. But uh, thanks for that. I'm happy with our life here in Texas, but I do wish it were 70 degrees outside. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I want to elaborate on this just a little bit because this has been a, a, a theme as of late a little bit, and we have several guests in the pipeline that that this is going to get brought up again. And just in general, you know, what do you do when things don't go as planned? Whether it relates to you know finding somebody and getting married, or whether it relates to you know, not getting the job opportunity or taking a job opportunity that you never thought you would. And there's all sorts of scenarios that everybody goes through. And, you know, I've, I've navigated these myself in various circumstances, I don't know, over the last 10, 12 years. And at the end of the day, I've just kind of come to realize that, you know, I can, I can make a plan and try to execute as best as possible, but that plan's most likely going to change. And so I just got to figure out how to operate in the chaos, which in some cases, in some days, I do better than others. But I don't know, Stacey, you have any tips and tricks for kind of the chain? I mean, I've, you know, it's been a whirlwind in our lives for the last, I guess, two and a half, three years since, since COVID and all sorts of stuff with selling a company and doing one thing and another and moving, but not multiple times. But you know, and also when we got married, but you know, this is coming up in several instances and in previous, a few previous guests and, you know, in some of the ones we've recorded that will be released here shortly. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that you have variables and then you have constants. And so things that I can control are hopefully my attitude, <laughs> not always, but my best on my attitude, but things that make me happy. And there've been times in my life especially as a mom of young children, which is chaotic in and of itself, where I've had to write down, okay, what brings me joy? What makes me feel centered and grounded? So for me, that's my faith, being on top of my exercise, being on top of my nutrition and carving out some alone time and also carving out some social time. And sometimes those things are together, meaning like sometimes my social time is also my exercise. So going running with friends, once a week or, you know, maybe it's okay. Our date night is with another couple. Cause that can be another fun social thing. Also working with my spouse to hey, I need a break from the kids for an hour so I can get the house <laughs> back together. Cause it looks like a tornado ripped through here in the last four hours. So, um, leveraging your relationships, especially if you're living in a household 
where it's not just you and being able to rely on one another is really important and really listening to what each other need. But yeah, I mean, focusing on the constants, even things like getting sleep, but really, I mean, you have to take care of yourself. If you don't put on your own oxygen mask first, you can't take care of other people. So doing the best I can to keep myself centered and grounded so that I can operate in an environment that's always going to be changing. Appreciate you sharing that. So today's episode, we have Jeremy. He's not even 30 years old yet, 29. And he's got a net worth of $1.7 million. About 80% of it is in real estate amongst several rentals. And we get into all the details on how he did that. He started out as an, a financial analyst in his career after college and then transitioned into full-time real estate, became a realtor, and built a, a really hefty real estate portfolio. He is probably one of the very few real estate investors that we've had on the podcast that, and, and by real estate investors, meaning that a majority of his life, he's professional real estate, uh, realtor, et cetera, is centered around real estate who also invests in the market and continues to plan to do so. So we get into that discussion with him, which is really unique and interesting. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a great episode with Jeremy. Last week we had Matt. Net worth was three point one million. He had about a half in or a third in real estate, a third in his uh, tax advantaged accounts, and then a third in his brokerage. I had some great discussions with him. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Jeremy. Jeremy, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what's up to you now? Hey, Jace. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess going back to college, kind of halfway through college, I was on the standard track, just kind of doing the plan was do nine to five, graduate, kind of going to a financial analyst job after that. But like halfway through school, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then that kind of like lit the light bulb to the entrepreneurial side, I guess you could say halfway through school. And then like after that, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the plan basically then was to go into real estate investing just because it kind of interested me. And I thought it was a viable path to kind of retire Earlier than say age 60, work the nine to five job until retirement age, like everybody else. So that kind of, I caught the the bug for that. And then really once I graduated college, started investing in rental properties. And then two years after that, I got my agent license as well. And then since 2018, kind of just been doing real estate investing, real estate agent business in tandem and haven't looked back since then, left the financial analyst job after doing it for two years and started out part-time as an agent and then jumped into it full-time. So continue to do that now, both of them kind of in tandem. And I started a team on the agent side as well after just it being me as a solo agent for the first few years, years and now I have agents underneath me. So it's just continuing to grow that while managing the rental portfolio at the same time. Awesome. I want to get a little bit into the decision-making that you went through in college and whatnot. But before we do, what's your net worth today? Uh, 1.7 million about right now. Awesome. And how's that broken up? Probably 80% real estate equity and then 20% stocks. The stocks are mostly just in index funds like S&P 500. And then real estate equity, I have 40 units that's ranging from a single family house upwards to some six to eight unit buildings I own with a partner. Really just kind of Keeping it mostly real estate because that's what I know. That's the business I'm in, and kind of just using the index funds and stocks is a little bit of diversification. Put those in the retirement accounts as well to take advantage of those more long term investments. But yeah, primarily real estate equity. 
Dang, I've never had a real estate investor that invests in the market. This is awesome. This is kind of unique and different. So let, let's talk about that real quick. You, you wanted a little bit of diversification. Did you start investing in the market when you started that first analyst job? Or has it been more recently that you put money in the market? Yeah, I did a little bit. Like I would always take advantage of the match when, at my job with the 401k. Like They matched up to 3 6% or whatever. So it was very minimal because I knew that I was going to get a higher ROI with real estate investing, at least at the beginning when I had limited funds, basically. So I didn't have enough money at the beginning to invest in both, but I didn't want to miss out on basically the free money of the 401k match. And then I've been a little bit in the Roth IRA at the beginning as well, just because I like the tax advantages of that and the fact that you can pull out the contributions earlier if you wanted to. So knowing that was accessible, I kind of took advantage of that a little bit, but yeah, I was pretty much focusing on real estate at the beginning. So nothing heavy in the stock market really until I think 2020 is when I started to do a lot into the stock market. Cause that was the point where I kind of had enough money to do both at the same time, but it was really focused on real estate at the beginning. Whenever I was on limited income, starter salary type deal. So just, I was just getting a lot higher ROI on the real estate. And that's why I focused mostly on that the first few years. And then since then, kind of diversified into stocks a little bit. So let's talk about that a little bit. You're you're running a business, you've got an agency, you've got some agents, but you're still putting money into the market currently? Yeah, right now, I was doing real heavy into the brokerage when the stock market was down big time. But obviously this year, it's way up, like S&P's up like 20% almost this year. So I haven't been still kind of dollar cost averaging into the brokerage account, but not as much as I was when they were down a lot. So I kind of view the brokerage account as like more passive long-term. I like it because it's doesn't give you phone calls or anything. Like it's a lot more passive than rental properties. So I think going forward, I may even start doing more into the brokerage, but definitely my philosophy on that is like I dump more in when the market's down more. And then I just dollar cost average basically into all my retirement accounts. Like I have a solo 401k. I put a couple grand into that each month. Roth and a couple grand pre-tax as well. So I max that out basically. And then I do the Roth IRA, well, backdoor Roth IRA, um, HSA. So I do all the retirement accounts basically. And then the brokerage account, if I have leftover money, I'll still put a little bit into it outside of my real estate stuff. Do you use that brokerage at all to to save up for a, another deal? Or is it mainly, hey, this is a strategy that I am going to continue investing in the market? Yeah, that's more long-term. Like I don't view the brokerage account as I'm going to use that as a down payment or anything. Because most of my real estate deals at this point, anyhow, I'm not really using a lot of my own money. It's I'm kind of buying to the point where I can borrow entirely other people's money to buy it, basically. So the brokerage account is just kind of like view it as long-term continuing to put it in as needed. And it's, it gets more appealing, I think, as time goes on. The fact that it is 100% passive to kind of grow that as well at the same time. Interesting. So even though you're heavy in real estate, you still plan to invest in, 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 in the market for, for the long haul. Yeah, I like it. I think that's a little bit me more so than other real estate guys, I guess you could say, is I, I've always been interested in like personal finance, like that side of it as well. So there's a, still a side of me that is interested in that. Like, I don't think I'm going to go ever to the point where like index funds are more than 50% of my net worth, just knowing real estate and knowing I kind of have an unfair advantage with real estate. But the fact that it's 100% passive and it is somewhat diversification as well is appealing, especially as I acquire more and more rental units, which aren't 100% passive. It's 
the the index funds are definitely a nice kind of side side business, I guess. At the same time, <laughs> I like it, man. So let's let's back up here just a little bit. You're in college. You read Rich Dad Poor Dad. You switch mindset, I guess you will, to potentially a career in real estate or investing in real estate. Why did you still decide to take an, a financial analyst job right out of school? Main reason being for that is it was. I think for me, a gradual shift from like the middle class mindset into like where I am now is definitely almost 100% like business entrepreneur type. So it was, I think growing up 100% middle class, it was a gradual shift. So it's like over time, more and more, I lean towards the business side. But at the same time, having the nine to five job, I was able to get mortgages to buy properties which was super important right off the bat. If I were to just go into, say, being a real estate agent after college, I would have had to wait at least two years to get financing on a property. So it's kind of like two birds with one stone. I was able to get financing. It was a gradual shift into full-time entrepreneurship. And the fact that having that steady income to pay my bills and whatnot at the beginning when I didn't have a ton of properties coming in, income coming in from the rentals or the agent business. It, it was a nice way to kind of do the agent business on the side and then eventually jump into it full time. That's awesome. So how long into your finance job did you buy your first property? It was right after I graduated college. So I was actually working full time my last semester because I was able to get college credits for it. So I got like pre-approved and everything. And I essentially closed on that first property a couple months after I graduated. And that's when I jumped into real estate investing. And then I do the house hacking strategy. So I bought a three unit property, moved into one of the units, rented the other two units out. They paid my whole mortgage. I've actually done that six times, basically one of those per year. That was kind of been a huge factor as far as acquiring rental units for little money out of pocket. But that was what I did the first one. And then I had bought two more of those before leaving the full-time nine-to-five job to go full-time into real estate. Wow, that's amazing. I love that you started this journey two years before you were able to have the cash in your pocket to do it, but you you came into it with a lot of forethought, so you were ready right out of the gate to start making those investments. Yeah, I basically had two years of self-education before actually jumping in, which probably is a good thing because I didn't make any major mistakes. I was fully educated basically as much as I could have been because I didn't have the money or ability to buy while I was in college just because I was still in school. So living the typical broke college student lifestyle, but getting a head start, learning the local real estate market, learning real estate investing in general, I think that definitely gave me a head start on jumping into investing right after I graduated, limiting mistakes. Yeah. So I know it can be I can feel a little daunting jumping into entrepreneurship and and probably also just jumping into real estate full full time and not having kind of a that that backup pillow that you had had in your job. A big hurdle for a lot of people making that transition is health insurance. So what did you do for health insurance when you made that move? Well, I was still I think at that point I would have been 24. So I was still my parents health insurance for a couple years after. So that was good. Uh, and then 26 came around. I had enough assets at that point. I felt pretty confident. Like I had money coming in. Like at this point, I still have just the $8,000 catastrophic, $8,000 deductible catastrophic health insurance plan. Cause I don't really, I'm pretty healthy, eat well, work out. So I don't really go to the doctors a lot. It's just kind of a 
worst case scenario health insurance plan. If I get in a major accident or major injury, it's $8,000 deductible. I know I can cover that at any given time. So that's what I've been using up to this point. It's like 150 bucks a nice. month. Yeah, that catastrophic is nice. If we didn't have three kids, goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just me, myself. I don't have kids yet or anything. So I'm cool with that for now. I mean, I'm I'm not even 30 yet. So yeah. I, I, feel, I feel confident that I hopefully won't have to use that. But being self-insured, I'm... I feel good about it up up until this point. Yeah, that's perfect. How old were you when you made the first million? Twenty eight. And then you you're almost up to two now. So it seems like getting closer to two was a lot faster than getting to that first one. Yeah, the snowball kind of kicked in, especially with the real estate market. Like we've had forty percent appreciation in the real estate market over the last three years. So it's just been starting. When I did was actually looking back. I'm glad I would bought with a sense of urgency, basically pre COVID and kind of the first year of COVID because it's just been riding the wave up of the appreciation the past three years. So definitely compound effect kicked in acquiring all those properties. And then just each and every one goes up in value. The loans get paid down. I'm buying them with equity on the front end as well. So I'm getting chunks of equity on the front end and just kind of after I acquire them, just going up in value as well. Nice. So what's the strategy now? Grow the agency, grow number of units that you own. Where do you see yourself going from here? So I have 40 rental units. I think I've reached the point. I kind of run a scenario on like, if these were all paid off, what would my monthly income be from the cash flow on them? And running that scenario, I'm like, okay, I don't really need more than that at this point. <laughs> so like at the end, at the end of the day, this is like looking down the road, if these are all paid off, I don't think I'm going to not do anything until I reach kind of closer to normal retirement age when they would be paid off anyhow. So I think I'm good on the number of units. If anything, I may optimize the portfolio, maybe trade in some of the, say, a building that rents for, it's a four unit building, the rents are 800 a piece. Maybe I'll trade that in for something that's maybe a four unit building where each unit rents for 1600 a piece. So like, same amount of hassle and work on that property, probably even less with the nicer one, but keep the same number of units, optimize the portfolio to something, maybe get into the more higher quality areas, top tier areas that are going to be more hands off or maybe like commercial properties at some point. But I think I'm good with the number of units as far as the rental portfolio goes. And then the agent team, I'm going to continue to to grow that because it's I got to do something. I'm not just going to sit around and do nothing. So that's something I enjoy working with investor clients to help them buy investment properties in the Pittsburgh area. It's something I'll probably continue to do. And it's nice because I have the flexibility with that. I'm I'm the team lead and then I have agents underneath me. So it's kind of a business, I guess you could say at this point, to the point where I can kind of be as involved as needed as far as me actually working in the business. Most of it is just kind of like I can have my agents run the the team, help the clients out, go view the properties, and then I can kind of just be as involved as I want to be. So it's good flexibility with that. I think I'm just going to continue to roll with that. And then I think I'll probably do more index funds going forward as well. Like I said, they're 100% passive. I've reached the enough point, I think, financially, the point where I can just dump all profits into index funds and have more than enough money to to live on the fact that I'm not even 30 yet. And it's kind of already reaching like where we've gotten thus far. I don't really see a need to have 
fifty million. Like I, I live in Pittsburgh. It's the average home price is two hundred some grand. It it doesn't cost a lot of money to live here, and I could live a perfectly happy life. Literally, just putting all the money into index funds, I'll have more than enough. So that's kind of what I'm thinking at this point. And that's I've gone back and forth on that so many times since I've kind of reached the critical mass of reaching the enough point. But I think that's kind of what it looks like going forward. And I'll probably do more maybe flip houses because I'm good at finding deals. I have systems in place to rehab the properties. I'm a real estate agent. I can list properties without having to to pay an agent. So I think doing more house flips is probably something I'll get more into. I've typically held everything I've bought thus far after rehabbing it. But the fact that I don't want to add more rental properties, I can probably just do more flips, dispose of them and not have to deal with the, the management side of it going forward. Are all of these properties pretty close to you right now? Yeah, they're all in the Pittsburgh area. I kind of tried to keep it somewhat close, not buy things all over the metro, basically. So pretty much everything I have is within, say, a half hour of, of the airport here. So it's all kind of centralized, pretty pretty close. I know you know the market super well and obviously live there. Do you worry about having concentration like that at all? Not here, because Pittsburgh's kind of a it's a rust belt city. It's it's not a ebbs and flows type of real estate market. So it's kind of always just been slow and steady as far as compared to say West Coast where you can have a lot of swings. It's slow and steady market. I feel pretty confident that nothing crazy would happen. And I have like, I guess, diversification within the portfolio. A lot of my properties are in different neighborhoods. So it's not like I'm buying 40 units in one neighborhood in the Pittsburgh area. So that's, it makes me feel confident in just knowing that I buy and I don't buy in crappy areas. They're, they're most, for the most part, good quality areas that people want to live in. And the properties that I buy are pretty solid properties. So not a huge amount of downside, in my opinion, on the fact that they are all in one market, just knowing the market and how it how things operate around here. Yeah, for sure. How much cash flow do you have kicking off right now from those units? I don't know the exact amount just because I probably will going forward because I outsource accounting and bookkeeping and stuff. But I think it's probably a lot of it's leverage. I, I want to say it's probably around like 75 grand net cash flow right now. And I've acquired properties like over the past year or two that are still kind of getting rehabbed getting stabilized and whatnot, but it's probably roughly around enough that if I wanted to live off of the cash flow, I could, but I wouldn't want to just, just do that and not do anything. So it's kind of all yeah. reinvested at this point. For sure. So as you continue to, to optimize portfolio and look, I mean, you mentioned that you, you did a couple of these with partners, walk us through the decision to, to partner up with somebody and, and, and kind of walk us through that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. So most of my stuff that's like one to four units is just me. And then me and a partner bought a few bigger buildings. The one was a six unit, the other one was an eight unit, and then we bought another six unit last year. So that was kind of, this was when I was still getting rolling too. So like my partner, he had access to capital basically to purchase these properties without having either of us to have used any of our own money. And I was kind of the deal finder as far as roles in the partnership. Being in it on the daily basis, I was the deal finder. And then he provided basically the resources to get the capital to buy these properties without having to use any of our own money. And then everything we bought was a value add. So five plus unit apartment buildings are basically the value of them is dictated on the income that they bring in. So we bought stuff that was like their units were really low as far as compared to market rents. 
like each one we bought, like the units were rented maybe 60% of market rents. So it wasn't being utilized to its full potential. And basically what we did was we used other people's money to purchase the buildings. And then me being kind of the more active partner, I come in, increase the rents to market rent. We didn't really have to do anything major rehab wise on the ones that we bought, which was nice. It was just a matter of increasing the rents to market. So just kind of over the course of a couple of years, bumping the rents up to the point where they are at market rents. And then at that point, the values are way higher than what we paid for them. So then we go to a bank, get a new loan to refinance the building. They'll typically give us 80% of what the, the value is. So just give rough numbers example. The first one we bought was 240000 We bumped the rents up after we bought it, went to a bank to get it reappraised. It appraised for 300000 We didn't have to put any of our own money into it. So we got a new loan for 240000 paid off the lender that we borrowed the money from, the short-term lender. And now it's basically cash flowing each month and we didn't put any of our money into the property. And then we did another one, the eight unit. We bought it for 525000 borrowed 100% of the cash from somebody else to purchase it. This one was really good. We Six months later, all we did, we didn't even have to raise the rents on this one because it happened to be a fourplex and two duplexes on separate parcels. So those being four units and under, they were valued based on the comparables, what other fourplexes and other duplexes were selling for. So at that point, we got three separate valuations on each of the three properties and it appraised for 775000 So we got 80% of that, which was, we actually got paid on those ones. We paid off the lender for 525000 plus their interest that they charged, pocketed the rest of the money. And now we have a new long-term loan on those properties and it's cash flow in each month. So the, each of the ones we bought, that was the strategy on those was utilizing other people's money to buy them, knowing that we can increase the value, pay them off with their interest, the short-term lender, and then get a long-term loan on it. So that's kind of how I've done even the smaller properties as well as that strategy. And it's kind of even been accelerated with the market appreciation as well at the same time. So it was just big chunks of equity at the beginning and values going up as the market appreciates at the same time. I want to touch on on something because I, th- I feel like this is interesting and I know this gets thrown around a lot in, in, in real estate circles, but you're, you're finding a deal and essentially the rent is not to market. How does that even happen? A lot of old-time mom-and-pop landlords, they bought properties 30 years ago. They're free and clear. They're old. They don't want to deal with tenants moving in and out. A lot of times, they don't even know what market rents are. They're just, they move a tenant in. They don't increase the rent each year. They're good tenants. They like their tenants because a lot of them self-manage. Fast forward 20, 30 years, these things are the same rents. They're happy because the property's free and clear no hassle. They collect their money each month. It's probably enough for them to live off of just because it's free and clear. So that's there's a lot of opportunities like that, especially in the Pittsburgh area where we have a lot of older population. It skews towards the older demographics. You see a lot of that going on. So it, it can be a good opportunity and to find deals like that, especially in the smaller multifamily space because they're they're typically not institutional investors. Like you might see when you go say 50 plus units, they're a lot of times mom and pop landlords that that's, you see that a lot. Very nice. So you mentioned that six different times you've moved into a place that you've bought, taken advantage of other people helping cover the mortgage as you're living there. Are you still doing that? Or did you finally come to a point where you're thinking, I've got plenty of money in the bank. I'm living in a comfortable place that I want to be. 
I am still doing that. So the plan was to do it my entire 20s. I'm about to turn 30 next month. So that was always a plan from the beginning. I haven't paid my own mortgage since I graduated college. So next year, we'll probably end up buying a single family house once we know we want to be long term. And that's the point where I'll probably stop house hacking. Although waiting on my girlfriend, she gets her doctorate in December. So we won't really know where she's going to be working until next summer. So I've kind of I may do another one. It, I have the ability to. I would just have to move into it and then just keep it as a rental. And we would buy a single family house. But I've been doing it since then. I've done six of them. I'm in a four unit building now that I bought last summer. But yeah, the, the plan was always to do it at least until I was 30 and then kind of get the single family house at that point. But yeah, I've done six of them. It's It's been great because if you move into them, you can get them for three and a half, five percent down. So not a ton of money out of pocket. I move into it and keep it as a rental after I've been able to acquire like this one I bought last year was a $500,000 four unit building in a great neighborhood close to downtown. I bought it for three and a half percent down. I actually represented myself as the agent on the deal. I negotiated a 4% commission that I got paid on the property when I closed. So I actually got paid to acquire the property. <laughs> so a lot of cool things you can do when you move into them with the financing, especially being an agent myself, representing myself. Um, it's been definitely worth moving every year to acquire expensive real estate for hardly any money out of pocket, basically. Wow, that's amazing. I do have to say, every time you say I'm not even 30 yet, it does make me feel really old. But I'm going to move past that for the rest. <laughs> so these real properties that you have, are you managing them yourself or do you have a property management group? So I was managing them up until January of this year. I outsourced pretty much all the units to the management company. I still self-manage some of the higher end single family homes that are renting for good money each month because they're pretty hands off. They're kind of top tier areas, high rent per month. So I still self-manage those. But I still have them on the property management platform because I actually did I did property management for out-of-state clients for two years when I had left the W-2 job. That was kind of like my steady income because I was still getting the agent business up and running. So I worked really closely with the property management company that I now use for management. So I was basically already in in that atmosphere knowing what goes into it. And it's the same owners that own our sales brokerage that own the management company. So it was pretty seamless as far as like this year, I was like, okay, I I probably want to get some of this off my plate as far as the day-to-day management goes, just because it's getting up to a lot of units at this point, like 40 units. And then plus I own some with partners. So I think it was like 50 some units total decided to outsource that the day-to-day management this year to them. And then I still handle the leasing. So either me or somebody on my team, when the properties go vacant, getting them up for rent, getting new tenants put in, I still handle that. But the day-to-day management, most of that's been outsourced at this point. Wow. You have really hacked this whole thing. You've created this system for yourself that you are able to take advantage of everything at your fingertips. <laughs> like being able to, in terms of representing yourself, you have this agent team underneath you. You've just created a, an amazing environment for you to thrive with your your real estate business. So I know that uh, I'm not a professional here, but I understand that there are different grades of properties. Is that right? Is there a certain grade of property that you're looking for when you're looking for rental properties or are, are some kind of better than others? I know you've said some are more expensive than others. So kind of talk us through how you choose those. Yeah, that's transitioned as time has went on also. So at the beginning, it was more cash flow focused. 
maybe not your top tier areas, like middle ground areas, areas that have better rent to price ratios than others. Cause I was more wanting to get that cash flow in the beginning because I didn't have a ton of money coming in. It's, it's a lot different now, but kind of has transitioned from maybe middle ground areas, cash flow friendly up to now at this point, it's kind of transitioning to nicer areas, like more expensive areas that are more higher quality buildings and neighborhoods. But now I don't really necessarily need the cash flow as much as I typically, as I guess I did at the beginning, because I kind of, at a certain point, I got my base cash flow coming in. So like, once I hit like 50, 60 grand in cash flow, I'm like, okay, I'm this is good enough cash flow at this point, especially because I'm not actually even living off the cash flow yet. And I don't plan on living off the cash flow anytime soon since I have the agent team now. So it's kind of transitioned into like more long-term thinking because typically the areas that are more cash flow friendly aren't going to appreciate as much long-term. The rents are going to go up as much long-term in those areas. The They're going to be more hands-on from a management perspective just because they're middle ground areas. Um, so now it's more so I've been focusing on not necessarily cash flow, but like getting getting higher chunks of equity off at the beginning on the properties because they're higher priced. So I stand a better chance of getting more equity right off the bat in the higher priced properties. Plus, you hold those 20 years, they're probably going to be worth way more than the middle ground areas. And the cash flow is actually money and be better in 20 years at that point. So it's more long term thinking, I guess, as far as how my property purchases have been from the beginning till now. And I think it's going to get even more into the nicer areas, just knowing that they're a little, little more hands off on the management side and they're, they tend to outperform long term compared to the cheaper areas. Has your lifestyle increased at all over the last few years as you've been doing this? Yeah, we've been traveling a lot more. So the fact my girlfriend's a teacher, so she's off in the summers, like we literally have been gone the entire summer traveling to take advantage of that. We don't have kids or anything yet. So the beginning, the first three, four years, I did not take any vacations and I lived off two grand a month, basically. So I, I basically had this vision that I wanted to get everything set up to the point where like when I reached, say, age of having a family, age 30, um, that I could have location independence if we wanted to travel as much as we can still make money while we're away get it the ecosystem set up to the point where i'm able to do that but i definitely front loaded it i made a ton of sacrifices at the beginning just living super below my means and basically not taking any vacations so it's it's definitely inflated a little bit but i'm not a huge like stuff guy and i haven't bought like super expensive cars or we even bought one. We even went and bought a $500,000 single family house. So I don't know if we're ever going to, if I'm ever going to get to the point where I'm paying a lot of money for stuff, you could say. So I I don't think that, and even the stuff that kind of makes me happy as of now doesn't cost a lot of money. So I don't really think my ideal lifestyle is going to cost a lot of money each month to live, but it is nice kind of being able to take more vacations now. It, that's that's probably been the biggest thing is just spending more money traveling. But as far as like day to day life, it pretty much is the same. I I live the the same lifestyle. I pretty much have lived since then, except for kind of the traveling part. And I did buy a nicer ish vehicle, but nothing crazy. But I also got a the the hundred percent bonus depreciation on that, so I don't really count that as splurging, I guess, because the IRS basically paid for half of it. But other than that, everything else is pretty pretty similar. I would say for the most part. You're obviously a goals-oriented guy. So what's what's the goal now? You reached a million before 
you were even 30 years old. What's the mark? Yeah, I actually really struggled with that after I hit it because like I had million dollar net worth 30 units by the time I hit 30. Like those were my numbers, like dead set on that from the beginning. And then I hit it and I'm like, what, what's next? So then it was like, I think over the last year and a half, it was more not money goals because hitting that so early, I literally could just coast and it's going to provide me for more than enough money that I'll even need to be able to spend the way I live, at least right now. So then it was more, I guess, lifestyle goals. That's kind of how things have shifted for me since that, since I kind of took care of the money side of it at the beginning. And now it's just like, like I said, optimizing things to give me location independence, being able to travel if I want to. So I think it's more optimizing a lifestyle, making sure that I can do the things I want when I want. And money obviously leads to the ability to do that. But now it's more so focusing, I guess, more on time and the ability to not have to, say, be here 24-7 running a business to the point where it's going to interfere with things I might want to do elsewhere. So I think that's, I've definitely gotten that kind of set up a lot more now too. And I I don't really have, I guess, financial goals. Because like I said, unless things change, I think I'm good with that amount of money financially. But I think continuing to, I do want to open up a gym at some point here soon. Like once we know we're going to be long-term, that's always been something I've wanted to do. It's it's not something you're going to make a ton of money on, but like I definitely want to have my own gym, kind of have a place to work out because I'm, I'm pretty into fitness and working out and everything. So that's something that's definitely on the the to-do list at some point here. And then continuing to grow the agent team, I think that's something that I'll, I'll definitely want to focus on going forward. And then just getting next steps as far as like getting a single family house and starting family and stuff at that point. So that'll be the, I guess the, the non-monetary goals, starting a lifestyle and the fact that I can have my investments pay for it and enjoy life, how I want to enjoy it. That was kind of the, the plan, I guess, the whole time. So nothing concrete, I guess, financially wise, but just kind of the subjective goals, I guess, at this point, <laughs> I guess we do want to, um, me and my girlfriend, we want to hit all the national parks at some point. So we've we've hit 15 of them like kind of over the past couple of years. I think there's like 60 total. So I guess that could be a goal is to hit all the national parks. That's awesome. I'll have to get you one of those uh, national park scratch off maps that you can uh, keep keep track of all those. Yeah, we actually got this like key key ring thing. Each time we go to one, we can buy a ring to put on it. So we, we buy those every time we hit a national park, put it on the key ring. That's awesome. Jeremy, before we jump into rapid fire questions, I want to ask, given the the raid environment that we've experienced over the last several months here and and just in general in the real estate market, has that changed your thought process at all? On rental properties? Yeah, or just investing in general. I mean, you know, increased rates and prices and the inflationary environment and all sorts of things. I mean, for the last probably what, twelve 13 years prior to now, we've had, you know, the most incredible bull bull market that we millennials have ever experienced and and our parents have ever experienced to some degree, but they also went through 08 and we kind of didn't, at least as investors or, or uh, you know, having exposure to, to interest rates and whatnot. I just want to get your, your thoughts on that as, as now, you know, I guess we're a little over a year into rate hikes and all sorts of turmoil around, you know, real estate and rentals and whatnot. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a completely different market. So when I first started, like, 
everything cash flowed basically. <laughs> like rates were low, rents were high compared to property prices. So it was kind of as far as timing goes for me individually, I'm a hundred percent glad I act with a sense of urgency to basically buy as many rentals as I could prior to now. Because if I was starting now, it it would definitely be a different I think the timeline would be longer. There's it would be a lot harder to kind of get to the financial position I'm in now if I were just starting from scratch today. So I think the biggest things that have changed, obviously, the prices have essentially doubled since I started. The rents haven't doubled. So the rent to price ratios aren't as ideal as they were at the beginning. And the interest rates have doubled. It's like my first property, I think the mortgage rate was three and a half percent. Now they're seven. So coming in day one numbers as far as cash flow compared to what you need to buy a property is not anywhere near what it was prior to COVID. And I think that that also is problematic because that was that time from 08 to COVID basically was not how real estate has historically been. That was essentially a benefit of prices coming down so much from the crash, interest rates coming down so much from the crash basically. To the point where I think it was a great opportunity time period, almost lucky to a point that if you were able to invest during that time period and get a lot of properties, you're basically setting yourself up, especially because everything I bought pre-COVID, I went and refinanced at 3% in 2021 when rates were 2 3%. So it was definitely, it takes longer to get to that ideal financial position where you're cash flowing a lot and you have a lot of equity. You can still get equity in properties. I'm still doing it myself. The only thing is those properties really aren't cash flowing right after you buy them. You kind of got to wait for the cash flow. Cash flow is one thing that's definitely started to dry up. So like everything I've been buying recently, I don't need the cash flow at this point, but like I wouldn't have been able to retire off of three or four rentals, not retire, but leave my day job off three or four rentals like I did previously. It You kind of have to find a way to get more active income now and then acquire the real estate. And then over time, it's going to start cash flowing, but it's very hard to kind of get day one cash flow compared to pre-COVID. It's more, I think it's uh, instead of getting both at the same time, like you used to be able to get, the play now is more get the equity and then eventually turn it into the cash flow. Like say you buy Say you buy five properties with 50 grand equity each. You have 250 grand in equity. Maybe you sell one or two of them. That gives you more money to put, say, a higher down payment on a property, and then you're going to get cash flow. So it's kind of like instead of getting both in one, you kind of got to do step one and then step two to get to the ideal financial position in the end rather than be able to do both at once like you previously could have, especially like I said, if you bought properties pre COVID at low prices, refinance when the rates were low, and now you're getting both essentially. So it, it's a timing thing, but the market is definitely different than it was without a doubt. And I think that that's something we've been struggling with a lot at, on as agents is explaining that to clients that it's a different market now. You have to have a different strategy. You have to have more of a long-term view. Those days are gone. I don't know if they're ever going to come back unless we have some sort of crash again, like we did in 08. But I... I can't see that happening, but nobody saw 08 happening, but that's that's where we're at now. It's definitely a unique environment with the high rates, high prices, and the crazy thing is people are still paying the super high prices, and I'm just wondering what their plan is with these properties because I know they're a lot of them are negative cash flow unless they're putting like 50% down, 
So it's just, it's definitely a lot different than it was without a doubt. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's ra- wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive pair of shoes that you've purchased? Uh, probably 150 my weightlifting shoes. Okay. What about the most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Nothing crazy on that. We've had like clients have gotten me gift cards that were way more than what we have actually paid. But probably was like, like me and my girlfriend go out probably like 110 bucks total. Okay. Good, good eating and good living in Pittsburgh. I like it. Oh, it's cheap here, man. It's great. <laughs> okay. What about the uh, most expensive vacation or experience? That would have just probably been recently. We went up to the Pacific Northwest for two weeks. I want to say that probably ended up between like a lot of it we use points for, um, but probably out of pocket, maybe a couple thousand, I'd say. Okay. What's been the most expensive uh, national park trip? Really, I think it was the ones that are either super remote. So the Pacific Northwest, speaking on that, was like they're very expensive to stay close to those parks because they're so hard to get to. And then you have them surrounded by like, say a city like Seattle and Portland, which are also very expensive to stay in and pay for things. So that was the double whammy is the, probably the big, the three parks that surround Seattle um, up in the Pacific Northwest. I think when you have expensive cities and remote parks, that's the, the double whammy of spending a lot to get, to get out there. Whenever you get ready to come to big Ben, let me know. We were there last year. Oh, you went to Big Bend already? Yeah. All right. Speaking of remote. <laughs> I was going to say, man. <laughs> that is off the grid for sure. But we stayed in an RV when we went there, so it actually wasn't too bad. Okay, good deal. Yeah, you. Uh, there's nothing close for about five hours each way. Yeah. And we wanted to hit that one, one of the first ones, just knowing that it, it was so remote and so hard to get to. So we got that one out of the way. Nice. Good deal. Uh, what's a key lesson you learned from childhood? I think the biggest thing I learned specifically from my parents was just living below your means. They definitely instilled that. And like where I grew up, it was not not like a flashy town or anything. It was kind of a rural-ish area. So it was very down to earth, live below your means. Don't spend crazy on money on things and you can still live a happy lifestyle. So I think that was probably the biggest thing I picked up from, from childhood that's kind of stayed with me till today. Is there, I know you said you're not too into things, but is there a a thing or experience that you're really looking forward to purchasing one day or experiencing one day? I probably will get a nice sports car at some point. Like I said, I might not get out of it as much of it as somebody else might, but at a certain point when I have like money to blow, you could say I'll probably get a a Corvette, uh, one of the newer Corvettes. I do like those. And then as far as like traveling, probably want to do more like overseas traveling at some point. Maybe we definitely go to Japan. That was something we've we got on the list. And then my girlfriend wants to do African safaris, so we'll probably hit two of those as they're on the the to do list for traveling for sure. Okay, we'll we'll meet you at both of those. <laughs> yeah, they're on our Sounds list too. Good. Yeah, awesome. What's the most fun that you've had with money? I'd say kind of two things. Like I'm super into seeing like the net worth go up. So I don't know, it's, it's, I guess that's the, the math finance side of me, but like just seeing the net worth go up over time and sense of progress and kind of seeing that increase, I, I get a lot out of that compared to maybe somebody else. And then real world, I would say like probably being able to actually start using the money to, to travel and stuff and improving my quality of life and kind of creating those memories that finally seeing the fruits of the labor to turning the money into something that does improve my life 
to that point because up until this point it's kind of just been, been a grind to get there but probably those two at the same time i would say just in different ways okay what's the craziest thing you've ever done to earn money i would say just being like not necessarily earning money but being super frugal at the beginning like i have def- the first couple of properties i lived in definitely were not neighborhoods i would have otherwise lived in but they're great cash flow areas. I was getting paid to live there. So kind of like an opportunity cost thing, I guess. People kind of were like, oh, you live there type deal. Whereas like now those neighborhoods have actually started to turn around and they're considered trendy neighborhoods. So it was like dealing with that at the beginning, I think is probably some people would consider crazy. Um, but I haven't really done anything like as far as actually earning money. I guess you could say working as much as I did at the beginning as well. Some people might consider it borderline crazy. The fact that I woke up at 4.30 in the morning to make sure I got everything in and was working the full-time job alongside with the agent job at the same time, literally having no free time. Um, I guess depending on who you ask, they might think that's a little crazy. Yeah. Do your friends or family know of your wealth at this point? Yeah, for the most part. I think it's just because like I've definitely had the goals and being the agent side as well. It's, I would say, pretty much at this point. Okay. What's a closely held belief that you've recently changed? I think the whole lifestyle thing. Uh, I read the book, Die With Zero. Have you heard of that book? Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a big shift for me as far as creating the, as Bill Perkins, the author calls it, memory dividends. Spending money, spending more money than I might have previously at a younger age, realizing that you can only do certain things like where we're at now, me and my girlfriend are both young, no kids. We're never going to be in this period of life again, being able to do some of the physical things that we've done, not having to deal with small children. When we go on these trips, the next time we go on a trip after the kids are, we're either dealing with small children on the trip or it's, we're going to be older by the time the kids are say out of the house. So Knowing that there's only certain time periods to do certain things, I've been more willing to spend money on and kind of taking that into account, the things that we do plan at certain stages of life that I'm otherwise previously might have. I, if I would have continued on the track of like, oh, I don't want to spend money, I could have missed out on the, the certain things that we might not be able to do in the future. That was probably the biggest mindset shift that I've had over the past couple of years. It's the it's the deal with young kids for me. Just no, wait. We, we love just that wait. book. We we love that book, uh, and and we're huge on on memory dividends. I do have a question though. You mentioned something a couple questions ago about how once you have money to blow, you will X Y Z. So at what point you got one point seven million dollars? At what point do you have money to blow? I don't know. If there's a concrete number on it because, like like I said, if I got more satisfaction out of say a nice sports car, I made otherwise think differently on that but i guess to the point where it's like i would have to try to spend that much money that's probably one because i don't think i'll get a huge utility out of say the sports car right now but i sure i would get some but i don't know if i could put a dollar amount on it you can always go rent them but i'm right there with you i'm gonna buy a sports car i'm gonna buy a sports car too so yeah i'm sure i'll do it at some point i think the other side is the fact that we live in pittsburgh it's we have a lot of hills here and anytime you see a sports car, it's scraping something in the fact that we have, oh, we have rough winters here as well. So if I was in Florida, like my mom lives down in Florida, I may have bought, I would have gotten more out of buying a sports car where you can drive a year round and it's flat than living in Pittsburgh yeah. right now. But we're going to be staying here at least until like we have kids and they're gone. So That's maybe fair. at that point. 
<laughs> That's fair. To wrap up, any last pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who's just starting out? I guess like just summarizing what I did, I would 100% do it over again. It's just living below your means to achieve your financial goals, house hacking if you can for your entire 20s. And then I really like real estate buying properties that you can get chunks of equity in if you kind of want to front load the the financial independence compared to say just buying stocks it's going to take a little longer and i think that if somebody can get into business or entrepreneurship that'll also help them achieve financial independence a lot quicker than if they were just working a nine to five job so those are just kind of my tips i guess for somebody starting out is focusing on those it worked for me and i think it, it can still work for anybody starting out today Awesome. It's Jeremy with a net worth of $1.7 million, not even 30 years old yet. Thanks for coming to the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. Millionaire.